vivo qualitative data analysis software empowers researchers around the world to discover rich insights within their qualitative data. This podcast gives you unique insights into the methods, the processes, and the passions of researchers. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. I'm Stacy Penna, the InVivo Community Director, and my guest today is one of our keynote speakers for our upcoming InVivo virtual conference, Dr. Sara Shaw, Associate Professor in Health and Social Policy at the University of Oxford and Fellow at Green Templeton College, Oxford in the United Kingdom. For today's podcast, we'll be talking about Dr. Shaw's research on the use of technology in healthcare. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shaw. Thank you, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, So I wanted to start with asking, how did you become interested in studying the use of technology in healthcare? Thank you. Well, um, my background is medical sociology and policy studies. So I've always been interested in the organization and delivery of healthcare and also in how health policy shapes healthcare delivery and vice versa. Um, And I guess my interests have been in bringing a a sociological lens to all of that. Um, So I spent many years working in academic departments studying things like rationing or how we coordinate health and social care, or even how commissioners plan and purchase services in ways that can support people with long-term conditions like dementia or diabetes. So I did that for years and years, and over time, technology and innovation just started to feature more and more uh, in, in those studies and in that work, as it did in, in society and in healthcare more widely. And so my interest just grew. So I'd love to tell you there was this wonderful defining moment. <laughs> it just <laughs> gradually grew. Um, and rather than being something that was almost background context, it just it just came to the foreground. And I got really interested in the different kinds of technologies that are out there, what they do, not so much in technical terms, but in more social and sociological terms, and also about how people in policy tended to think about technology and digital technology in particular. Um, And that tended to be, my take would be quite utopian. Um, So they tended to perceive policy uh, as an answer to very specific problems in healthcare, like trying to increase efficiency. Um, But in fact, there's a real tension here because on the ground, technologies are actually rarely taken up or adopted in the way that policymakers, decision makers, developers um, envisage originally. Um, So that contradiction is pretty much what got me me hooked, really. And I did a bit of work with colleagues on video consulting several years ago um, when Skype was pretty, not new, but novel in healthcare anyway. Um, And then it's taken off from there. And now we, and I say we because it's a whole team of people in in Oxford, um, are still looking at video consulting, but then also things like GPS, um, the use of robots in social care, uh, remote monitoring for heart failure, and and many more. So... Mm. Really taken off. That's great. Thank you. Uh, so, what are some of the methods you use when conducting your qualitative research, and you know how have those changed due to the COVID nineteen restrictions? Yeah, good question. <laughs> um, lots, lots of change. Uh, so, if, rewind pre COVID. Then, a lot of our research uses uses case study. 
Um, and within that, I suppose, ethnographic observation and interviews and a mix of interviews, typically kind of narrative, possibly go along. So following people and shadowing them in their jobs and getting them to tell us about what they're doing as, as they go along. Um, and mixed up with, with documentary analysis as well. Um, so a mix, really, um, and deeply qualitative and aiming really for quite thick and rich description of what would typically be quite a small number of cases. Um, and I would say with that, we typically use quite a multi-level design. So focusing on what we say, micro, meso and macro, um, which I think are heuristics. I mean, we're, we're simplifying slightly, but they're quite helpful as a way into thinking about methods. Um, and in healthcare, that might be the, the micro level of clinician patients interaction, the consultation. At the MISO level, um, that might be healthcare organisations like the hospital or the general practice, or perhaps even a network of hospitals. Um, and then at the macro level, that would be policy regulation and kind of the overarching national or potentially even international um, context. Um, and as I say, that, that kind of design tends to guide um, the methods that, that we use. And we're also interested in that thread running through uh, from macro to micro uh, and the other way, it's a recursive process. So following it from the kind of nitty gritty detail at micro level interaction through to, to overarching regulation and how those might be shaping and enabling each other. So to give you to give an example recently and, and particularly with the work on video consulting, we've also started to use methods from linguistics um, to study communication and interaction. Um, and so those are video mediated consultations um, but then we also use ethnography uh, to understand the wider healthcare context in which those kinds of consultations take place. So that would include looking at things, policy generally, but also regulations around governance and security requirements or potentially things like certain platforms like, like Skype um, within healthcare and bringing those two different aspects together. And um, well, then you asked me about COVID yeah, as well, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so in the new worlds that we're in, um, so in terms of, I mean, they've absolutely, COVID has changed everything really, hasn't it? So we find ourselves in such a different world, um, generally, you know, in our personal lives, but in research as well. I've been thinking about this quite a lot, and I, I would say that not, not that much has actually changed in terms of methods. Um, but I think a lot has changed in terms of delivery and how we go about doing it. And potentially, but not always, in terms of creativity and, and, and innovation. Um, so it's forced us, many of us, to, to try to think a bit differently about the situations that we find ourselves in and what we can do differently. Um, and I'd, at the risk of stating the bleeding obvious, every, you know, unsurprisingly, everything's gone online. Mm -hmm. um, so we, you know, we're all conscious of the need that we need to social distance and and do our part in trying to control spread so we're working from home and we're also interacting with people who are either working from home uh, in most cases just starting to go back into to offices again who who knows what will what will happen um but then many of them actually dealing um with covid-19 at the front line of of healthcare and in many cases struggling not only with a sort of highly infectious disease and patients coming in with a highly infectious disease, but also struggling to make sense of just massive, massive changes in healthcare at the, at the front line. Um, so in terms of what's changed in, in our methods, I think there's some things which 
feel <laughs> fairly solid. Um, like in interviewing um, has gone pretty well. We've all very quickly and rapidly got into multiple platforms and working out what we can do and how we record and um, to an extent developing rapport. Some people find that easier than others, but I thought, you know, those kind of things are going okay. Documents as well, you know, we can still talk to people and access things in, in a very similar way. But ethnography and observation have been really tricky. Um, so, you know, how do you, how do you hang out with someone when everything's gone online? Um, and it's those kind of corridor conversations, the kind of tacit behind closed doors stuff that I think is just, it's just more difficult to access. Um, we've been trying to think about different ways and how, how you access different kinds of meetings that are happening online and doing things like trace ethnography to, to kind of follow some of the more technological aspects of the work we do through the, through the system. Um, I think overall what I'd say as well is that, I don't know, this is all anecdotal of course, but uh, I think where we've got existing studies and they moved online, that's really felt okay because we've got established relationships. I think the new studies that we're doing now, and we've got, we've got two that have started in the last two or three weeks, I think, you know, that's forming new relationships in a new context in a new environment and that brings new challenges for methods. So you mentioned you had to become more creative. What's one thing that you found that was more creative that you're doing now than you might have not done in the past or didn't think of maybe? I think certainly the trace ethnography, kind of picking ideas about technologies and platforms and trying to follow them through the system, which I, I think we did anyway, but I think we've got more innovative in articulating it and trying to identify and almost legitimate some of some of the methods that we have um uh, the other thing would be practicalities really i think we've spent i'm not sure it's that creative actually but <laughs> i think we've spent such a huge amount of time traveling mm. and actually with a kind of climate change and sustainability hat on which we really need to think about going forward um actually it's been quite easy to get hold of people it's been really quite nice to just uh, not have this aspect of, of field work um, that takes up an awful lot of time but to still be able to talk to people in a way that's really meaningful mm -hmm. so perhaps not that creative but um, something that we're going to really need to reflect on and think about going forward mm -hmm. yeah great thank you uh, so in the research you and your team members conducted on video consultancy, you focused on three key areas. So one was IT infrastructure, two, organizational routines and workflows, and three, interactional work of a video consultation. Um, can you sort of elaborate on these? I, I found it was, it was interesting, especially now where in this... COVID-19 reality where more people are doing video consultancy? Yes, I'd be, I'd be very happy to elaborate on them. Um, so I guess it comes back to what I was saying about design really and our focus on um, micro level interaction, meso level organization and macro level, which I did talk about national level context, but I guess it's really infrastructure. Um, so perhaps if I just take each one of those in turn and, and, and just talk through briefly. Mm -hmm. um, so the micro stuff, we've, we've done 
really detailed analysis of video consultations in diabetes and cancer, pre-operative, oh no, post-operative post cancer and um, heart failure services. And most of those were, or I, should, I should say a lot of people quite nervous about video consulting over the last 10 years. Um, and people have very understandably, um, whether they be clinicians, managers, or people like you and I, um, you know, concerns about reliability and what it means to go online. Uh, but actually most of those were technically and clinically just very unproblematic. Um, people do manage to connect and have a consultation online. Um, I think certainly pre-COVID, and this is something that we need to think about now, but pre-COVID, it's worth saying that most patients were selected by their clinician as being appropriate for a video consultation. So I think there was some kind of, you know, teasing out process and, and those patients tend to be more health and digital literate, if you like. Um, and so this, there's a lot of work to do here, but in that particular study, we, we, we did find three interactional challenges. Um, that was the, the first of those was actually opening up the video consultation, which is so different from walking into a room, basically. It sounds really obvious, but that presents some interactional challenges. Um, the second one was dealing with disruption to flow and conversational flow as a result of things like lag and latency, which we've all hugely <laughs> familiar with now. <laughs> Um, and the third one is actually conducting an examination. So a lot of these videos, um, the video consultant was in secondary care in hospitals. Um, so for things like post-operative cancer care, there were instances, and actually for heart failure as well, instances of physical, physical examination. And that obviously poses some challenges when you're not actually in the same place. Um, so, but kind of operational and, and technological issues were really the exception rather than the norm, which I think kind of went, certainly at the time, <laughs> it actually feels quite dated now, <laughs> uh, but at the time, pre-COVID, um, was a bit of a surprise. And in all but one case, both clinicians and patients, deliberately or intuitively, we, we just don't know, um, but they used basically established communication strategies to work through any kind of interactional challenges. Um, so that's not not to say that everything was really straightforward, you know, uh, an older person with heart failure trying to do a remote physical examination and hold up a camera and show, you know, um, a palpation and pressing on the bottom of their leg is really hard. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it was it was OK. So that was micro. Um, in terms of MISO, um, a lot of our work has been at MISO level and really involved mapping out organisational routines and processes. And these are often really established and deeply embedded within clinical teams um, and organisations over many, many years. So it's just absolutely fascinating to map it out. And to do that, we've done it for face-to-face -face and for video. Um, so you're looking at the same clinical situation and mapping out the processes for face-to-face for -face and video and understand what's different about the processes, the people, the different kind of artefacts that feature, like the electronic patient record. Um, and they, they were really quite markedly different. And when you put even just a, a simple flow diagram, a simple picture next to each other and look, you're like, oh, gosh, OK. Um, and I think, again, <laughs> pre-COVID, uh, 
there was a bit of a surprise to a lot of people um, and holding that up to people in services and, and really showing how different it is um, was, <laughs> was really quite a big leap. Um, and what it really reinforced for us was that actually implementation of video consulting can be really hard because you're changing very, very established routines and many people and processes and organizations as a whole find that very, very difficult. It's complex. Um, so that's me. So um, macro, uh, we've drawn on the work of Star, Susan Lee Star on infrastructure. Um, so she, she defined infrastructure as something that other things run on and a real concern here with with what she called boring things. <laughs> just don't anyone switch off yet, so stay with me. Um, and that could be, uh, I think you talked about IT infrastructure. So it could be technical things like, you know, cables and computers and monitors and all the things we think about when we think about ICT, but actually we're talking about infrastructure as a much more broader um, um, concept. Um, so to give you one really, really boring example, um, uh, payment systems or what, what some people call reimbursement. Um, it sounds really boring. Uh, and I guess in many ways it is really boring, but it's hugely relevant for video consulting. Um, so basically if you're running services, um, you, you need some kind of payment flowing around the system for them. Um, and in the UK, hospital-based services, payments usually done by something called uh, a tariff which is a, a nationally agreed way of paying for a particular item or a particular service. Straightforward, right? Nice and easy, except there is no agreed national tariff for a video consultation. Um, so you, you pick away at that with your qualitative methods and you try and kind of get to this understanding of what's going on around reimbursement. Um, and then you realize actually this is a massive infrastructural problem because basically, you know, hospitals have no motivation. Well, I say no motivation, little motivation, perhaps, um, if they can't clearly see the payment for a new service model. Um, and so this, you know, as an infrastructural challenge, I think it was a, a wonderfully boring, but wonderfully important thing that needs, well, needed and still needs addressing. So those were the three areas that we, we've been looking at and continue to look at. We will take a short break from the podcast episode to inform you that Dr. Shaw is one of the keynote speakers for the InVivo virtual conference on September 23rd. She will be presenting on remote consultations in healthcare. What can qualitative analysis tell us about development and use before, during, and after COVID-19? To register for the InVivo virtual conference, please visit our website at www.qsrinternational.com slash in vivo. So has it, uh, some of this changed, be, you know, post COVID or during this time where people I'm guessing have had to use more of the video consultancy. So have they figured out how to do the tariff now or? Um, well, that's, that's a really interesting question. And uh, as far as I understand it, <laughs> Uh, this is work in progress. As far as I'm saying, tariff is actually frozen at the moment. Mm. Um, so COVID brought about a massive change almost overnight in, in relation to, in, in all aspects of our lives. Um, and for healthcare um, particularly, you know, there have been radical changes. So um, 
they've found other ways to kind of um, make it possible for those changes to happen and, and freezing tariff and thinking about other ways of um, paying for and providing services has been absolutely key. And same with other kind of overarching regulations, some things about governance, also some, again, very boring stuff about procurement, but really important. And I think providers have been faced then with a, with a, with a triple novelty, if you like. So they've got a new disease, which is hugely uncertain, highly contagious. They've got a new way of interacting with patients, which is largely by phone and video. And then they've got major changes to workflows and, and clinical pathways. And that's meant that things like changing um, payment systems and regulation has allowed for a far greater use of, of technology. Um, yeah, so I, I guess what we're seeing now is rather than questions about whether providers might shift to video consulting, what, which is what we've seen over the last five, 10 years, what we're now seeing are questions about how to do that very, very rapidly and at scale all at the same time. Um, and, and anecdotally, what we've seen so far is a, is, is a lot of setup across primary and secondary care, across practices and hospitals, um, as everyone shifts to this idea of remote by default care. I think what I'd say, again, anecdotally, is that actual implementation and actual use seems to be quite variable. So we're beginning to see Yes, an awful, awful lot of teams and clinics being set up, but that doesn't mean that all of them are using it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, and we still don't know things like, you know, is it better when, when Sarah Shaw goes to consult her GP about uh, a cough? Is it better to do that by telephone or is it better to do that by video? Or if she's got an underlying health condition, does she really need to come in and see her face to face? Mm -hmm. um, so there's lots of things that we don't know. But the main thing that's happening at the moment is just trying to do things rapidly. Mm -hmm. and scale. Yeah, I wonder if some of these new ways of doing things will continue after COVID once we can go back, hopefully, to our normal lives. If they'll, so I'm guessing some people will, some people won't. Might depend on preferences too. I think that's a really, really good question. And I wish I knew the answer. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> and I'll be more, more research for you. <laughs> I think, well, it's part of what we're doing yeah. now. I think um, for, the, um, for the keynote, I think I was particularly going to draw on work we're currently doing funded by the Economic and Social Research Council mm -hmm. on remote by default care in primary care mm -hmm. and during COVID. But we've also been funded by the Health Foundation recently to look at spread and scale up of video consultations and think about mm -hmm. um, sustainability and what this means going forward. And I'm, you know, we're not the only people who are doing work in this area, and, and rightly so. And I think it's absolutely key what what will what will stay and what's valuable to patients and practitioners and the services, um, and which bits of it do we do we need to keep. Um, and when we look back pre-COVID, what is it that we value mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and we still want? And how can we find a way to, to keep that? And I, yeah, I, I'd love to say by September, we'd have some answers to those things. I suspect it's not quite that straightforward. No, probably not. <laughs> so, um, so uh, and we've talked a little bit about this, but um, how has the situation with COVID-19 changed the way healthcare providers sort of use technology in general that you've seen? 
Yeah, I guess I've touched on that a bit in terms of spread and 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 scale up already. I, I think there's a, I guess there's several other layers on top of that as well. So um, we're beginning to see other kinds of technology um, being used, and, and you know I think there's just a massive drive on, on the back of the need to distance and manage. Um, a highly infectious disease uh, for people to find really quite innovative and creative ways around it. And, uh, you know, we're seeing, if I take primary care as an example, with video consulting, there have been one or two platforms which have been quite dominant um, and, and others around, um, but we get beginning to see many, many more come onto the market as people kind of almost compete or fight for space uh, around that. So I, I'm sure we're going to see much more about other technologies appearing and I think at the other end of the the spectrum we've we've got things like robots in social care which was a kind of you know slight pie in the sky or it felt like a bit of a pie in the sky fantasy world a lot of this is 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 already starting to happen pre-covid but now feels like a really sensible idea (laughs) Um, so you know is it the, the the scales are kind of tipping and and perhaps some of the the metaphors and the ways of thinking about some of the technology are changing in light of the context that we find ourselves in. Um, so I would say, watch this space. Um, but going back to one of the, the earlier points is that these technologies are rarely adopted or taken up in the way we envisage. So I think it would be quite interesting times to see what, what people actually want and what they do. And um, so what is one piece of advice you would give a researcher conducting health research during this time? Yeah, I thought <laughs> thought quite a bit about this, and that really the one piece of advice I would give, which is what I say to my team on a regular basis, is actually just give yourself a break. I think everyone is under so much pressure at the moment to 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 manage their daily life and their research life and think about their career and their family and all these things are kind of melded together it's really hard um, and I think anything that you can do in the midst of all of this to carry on and do the research that you're doing to the quality that you have always done it um, to be innovative or creative as far as you can and it may be tiny, tiny steps, or it may be something huge. And whatever it is, give yourself a break and a pat on the back, because I think it's a jolly good job. It's great advice. And I think everyone could take that advice right now, no matter what they're doing, <laughs> whether a researcher or not. So thank you. Um, so thanks so much for joining us for the InVivo podcast Between the Data, um, Dr. Shaw. And uh, we really appreciate that you're going to be one of our keynote speakers uh, on, during our InVivo virtual conference on September 23rd. So this was a nice uh, sort of sneak peek of uh, what you'll be talking about during the conference. So thank you. Thank you. I'm very much looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for Between the Data. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more about InVivo podcasts and community events, please visit go.invivobyqsr.com slash community or email me, Stacy Penna, at s.penna, P-E-N-N-A, at qsrinternational.com.